um, in the midst of remembering a tragedy. Because we're here to remember the, the, the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Man killing God. But we're also here this morning to remember that because of that incident, because of that incident, we have great cause for rejoicing because it was through the death of Jesus Christ that we can have life. So we've just been singing songs here about, about the cross. It's, it's, it's fitting, obviously, on Good Friday to be singing songs about an instrument of Roman torture. But for so many in the world, this is just, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that we would be celebrating something as horrific as this. It didn't even make sense in the, in the first century when, when the Romans, who were persecuting the early church, thought that, that the, they thought that the early church were, were practicing some form of cannibalism because they talked about eating flesh and, and drinking blood. And ironically, the Romans thought that the early church were idolaters because they did not have any symbols as part of their worship. They didn't have any icons or statues that they bowed down before. And yes, many of us have a cross, but we don't bow before a cross. We don't bow before a cross. It's, we remember the cross of Christ, but it's not an idol. It's no, there's nothing magical about a, a little cross that, that people would wear around their necks. But for those who are truly born again in Jesus Christ, this is a day that we remember. This is a day that we celebrate the death of Christ. Because we know how the story finishes. And this morning, in a few minutes, I'm going to be preaching about Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. And it's really hard for me to, to stop at the end of this sermon because I want to go on and to proclaim the good news of what happened three days later. But I really, as we focus on these things this morning, I wanted just to pause and to reflect specifically on the cross of Christ. And we just sang that for the, the reproach of the cross is something that we gladly bear. And I would ask each one of us this morning, are you gladly bearing the reproach of the cross? Are you bold to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and have a, a holy fear of God and not a, a fear of man? Because we're told not to fear man. The worst thing that a man can do is kill our body. Rather, we're to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So are you gladly bearing the reproach of the cross? Are you bearing the reproach of the cross as you live for righteousness and strive to live for righteousness amidst a world that says that you're foolish? Amidst a world that would say that you are even vile 
or sinful because of your stand for righteousness. Now, we remember in prayer regularly the persecuted church. And there's one pastor in Iran who we've been praying for for quite some time because he was, was given the sentence of death by the, by the Iranian officials. And he still is sitting in a prison, but, but the, la- the latest report says that he is actually, the, 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 the order of execution has been rescinded. And they're saying that, that he is, is not going to be killed now. He, he very likely will, will spend many years in prison, but he is not going to be killed. And we have cause for rejoicing. We have prayed for this man specifically. This is a man who is symbolic of, this is just one case that has, has, been, has been popularized in the media, particularly the Christian media, but, but he is representative of so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But it's not just in faraway countries that people are suffering persecution because of their stand for righteousness. A good friend of mine, in fact, the, the, the man who's going to be the, the best man at, at my upcoming wedding, is a pastor in Ohio. And his church is suffering persecution because they have taken a stand and said that it's actually right for parents to spank their children. Because God's word commands that he who spares the rod, hates his child, and foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And the world jumps to the extreme case and does not, is not able to draw the line between spanking from a, the hand of a loving parent and child abuse. But the Bible says that someone who does not discipline their child in that way is actually the one who's practicing child abuse. When I was teaching, I saw again and again and again, student after student. Now, at a, at a parent-teacher interview, I could see, I, could, I knew what the parents were going to be like from, from just the way that their, their children were, the way the children behaved. And, and the, the, the children who behaved the worst were the parents who actually gave out the least discipline. These parents, these students, children ran, ran wild. And their parents are more concerned about their comfort levels than they were about disciplining their children. And so here, my friend, I was just talking with him on the phone this morning. This is just, and this is part of the reason I want to talk about it now, is they're experiencing this at the moment. At the moment, they're going through quite a few different issues, but, but somebody's actually threatening to go to Child Protection Services um, for my friend and his wife and for the church secretary and her husband and also to go to the media. Now, they're taking a stand for righteousness. I know, I know this family so well, and they do not, believe me, they do not beat their children. But we're going to stand up against a world that tells us that the things that we believe and the things that we're doing are wrong. And so... We need to, to take a stand in our hearts now that when that, when that comes, and it, it's already coming, that we are going to stand firm for righteousness' sake. 
you know, there, there are, are people that would even say that so supposed Christians who say that, that the event that we are celebrating today is actually divine child abuse. They say that it is the, a horrible injustice that God the Father would pour out his wrath on an innocent son. As I said, there are those who call themselves Christians who call that divine child abuse. And it just goes to show the foolishness of the world. And they say what we believe is foolishness because they're perishing. So I want us, in a, in a second here, we're going to pray, and I'd like us to, to think about the way that we stand for righteousness and the way that we should stand for righteousness. And to ask ourselves whether we are taking our cues of right and wrong from what the world says or from what God and his words say. So let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we do bow before you. And Lord, as Dave reminded the leaders of this church on Tuesday evening, that we are to have a, a holy reverence of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts for each one of us, not just for leadership, but each one would, would submit, would bow the knee to your word. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the word become flesh. Lord, I pray that you will help us to stand firm in the strength that only you can give. We pray that for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing imprisonment or even death because they're standing up for the name of Jesus and proclaiming the gospel to those who hate you. And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters in so-called free countries who are standing up for righteousness because they love their children and want to train their children in the, in the fear and admonition of you. So I pray, Lord, that you will help them. I pray that you will help this pastor and his wife. I pray that you would help their elders to stand firm. I pray for this, their, the family who is, is suffering persecution as well at the hands of their own relatives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to pray for the freedom that we can, that we might be able to worship you as your word tells us to and to raise our children in the way that you tell us to. For we ask this in the most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask if Brandon can come up and read the, the scripture for us this morning. It is a, a rather lengthy passage as it... Uh, details the events surrounding the death of Christ 2,000 years ago. I will be reading from Luke chapter 2247 to the end of chapter 23, located in page 785 of your pew Bibles. Again, Luke chapter 22, 47 to the end of chapter 23. I will be reading from the NIV. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up 
and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you may come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also the one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophecy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked him, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they, be, they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day Herod and Pilate had become friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. 
I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with them to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Sir, sur Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these signs. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Dujean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn to the Lord one more time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a just God. You are a holy God. You are a righteous God. But Lord, we thank you, too, that you are also a loving God and a gracious God and a forgiving God. And so, Lord, we thank you for the cross in which all of your attributes unite. And, Lord, we thank you, even though we don't understand, but, Lord, we thank you that you have singled us out for salvation. Lord, when so many, the vast majority of people on the planet have no idea what the cross was all about. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed it to us by your Holy Spirit. And in Christ's death, you have made us alive in your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray this morning that by your Spirit, you would help us to apprehend these truths more deeply. We pray, Lord, that you will help these truths to take root in our hearts, that we might be changed by them. Lord, as we think about the gospel and our need of the gospel every bit as much today as on the day we were first saved, we pray, Lord, that you will help your gospel to have an effect on us that changes us and makes us more like Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will help us to follow Christ's example of taking up our cross daily and following him. For we ask it all in the most precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Brandon read for us this morning a a rather lengthy passage of Scripture that details the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ from his arrest through to his death. Whereas last Sunday we examined Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, today we are going to examine the most important event that has ever taken place in the history of the universe. Last week when we were looking at the triumphal entry, we compared it to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And while Queen Elizabeth rode in to the city on a golden chariot drawn by eight powerful horses, Jesus rode on a lowly donkey. While, King Elizabeth was, while Queen Elizabeth was surrounded by soldiers who would gladly give their lives to protect her, King Jesus was surrounded by soldiers 
who would crucify him in just a few days' time. While Queen Elizabeth was crowned with a crown of gold by a religious leadership who celebrated her reign, King Jesus was, was crowned by a religious leadership who despised Jesus' reign. While the followers of Queen Elizabeth were humble in her presence, the followers of King Jesus were arrogant in his presence. While the crowds before Queen Elizabeth cried, God save the queen, the crowds before King Jesus cried, crucify him. So last Sunday we saw how the events around the triumphal entry showed how the Roman army did not recognize Jesus' mission. We looked at it also from the perspective of the Pharisees who did not recognize true ministry and from the, from the perspective of the crowds who did not recognize that moment. But today, as we look at the events surrounding the crucifixion of King Jesus, we're going to look at it first from the perspective of Peter who didn't recognize his own impotence, from the disciples who didn't recognize his methods, and from Pilate who didn't recognize Jesus' majesty. So let's zero in on Peter first for a few moments. There at the Last Supper, just prior to the crucifixion, in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So boldly, Peter replies, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And that's so typical of Peter. He's the same one who went out to Jesus walking on the water and then looked at himself and his own circumstances and began to sink. He's the same one who, just a couple of chapters later, rebuked Jesus when Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the scribes and elders and be crucified and, and raised again on the third day. This earned Peter a stiff rebuke from Jesus as Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this was just after he had received high praise from Jesus for his declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was always at the head of the line, always being the first to speak out, and what came out of his mouth was often way off being. And each one of us probably identifies with, with certain characters of the Bible, but personally, I identify with Peter. If there was a character in the Bible that I was most like, I would say it's probably Peter. Self-reliant. Proud. Speaking without thinking. And when I do that, just like when Peter did that, we are both demonstrating a complete, utter failure to understand our impotence. 
But I don't think Peter and I are the only ones who do that, are we? All of us, each one of us, has the sinful tendency towards self-reliance. I think that is one of the, the blessings of aging. Because as your body gets weaker, you tend to be more prone to realizing your weakness and hopefully towards confessing your weakness to God and seeking his strength. But each one of us are called to do that. Each one of us are called to rely not on our own strength, but on the strength of Christ alone. So Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 22 in the book of Luke, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Now, we don't need to wait very long for the fulfillment of this prophecy because there, just a few verses later, in verse 54, Peter denies Jesus before a, ser a servant girl, before a lowly servant girl, and some bystanders, and even does it with an oath. But what happened between Peter's bold statement a few verses earlier and this supreme act of cowardice? Gethsemane happened. Gethsemane happened. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas came with a crowd to arrest Jesus, we read in verse 50 that one of the disciples took up a sword and lopped off the servant of the high priest's ear. John tells us that that disciple was Peter. So Jesus said in Luke, no more of this, and rebuked Peter and then actually touched the servant's ear and healed him. So Jesus told Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Peter failed to understand what Jesus was doing. He still wasn't setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He was looking towards a, a, an earthly kingdom instead of towards a heavenly kingdom. But because Peter, didn't, because Peter was focused on earthly things, he didn't know the gravity of the situation. He didn't know the risk. He didn't know the power of the forces that were against him. So he didn't even hear when Jesus said to him that Satan was demanding to have him, they might sift him like wheat. He might have heard it with his ears, but he didn't hear it with his heart. And the evidence of that was his behavior shortly thereafter. Peter was self-reliant. He thought that he could stand in his own strength by his own bravado. But the only reason that Peter wasn't utterly destroyed was because Jesus was interceding for him. So not only did he not know the power of the forces that were against him, but he certainly didn't know the power of the one who was interceding for him. So there, just a few hours later, after that bold declaration that he would stand with Jesus to the death, he's there denying Jesus in front of a lowly servant girl. 
He denied. He, lo- he said that he did not know the one who he had walked with so closely for three years. The one who had healed his own mother-in-law. The one who he had seen heal the blind and, and, and unblock deaf ears and help lame legs to walk. He'd seen those miracles with his own eyes, but because of his self-reliance, he had denied Jesus. And so often, we're like Peter. If you have been born again in Jesus Christ, you have been personal witness to a miracle that is every bit as powerful, in fact, more powerful than raising somebody from the dead. Because if you have been born again in Jesus, you have been given a new heart. You have been given a heart that loves Jesus instead of a heart that hated Jesus. You have been given a desire to serve Jesus instead of a desire to rebel against Jesus. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? Maybe not denying Jesus with our words, but denying Jesus with our actions. We also make bold declarations, but we don't fulfill them when we don't rely on Christ's strength. Now, as, as Jane and I prepare for marriage, one of the things that, that we've been blessed to do is to, to participate in, in really good biblical pre-marriage counseling. And we've been able to read together quite a bit of material and study together quite a bit of material on what it means to be married and what it means to enter into a covenant, not just with each other, but before God. And so, so, so often, when things get bad in a marriage, people retreat into self-protection mode. Or they focus so much on the sins of the other person, and they fail to look at their own sin. And I was just reading this morning about some very good biblical counsel in that we need to, instead of of focusing on everything that is wrong and making commitments that I'm going to change, we need instead to focus on the promises of God. And God commands us that we love each other. And the promise of God is that we will love each other if we are truly born again. So in this, in this example, we don't rely on our strength, but on Christ's strength. When we're facing temptation out there in the world and summer's coming, and like I've said before, as the, the weather warms up, the clothes come off. So young men, I want to challenge you to do like what Job did, to make a covenant with your eyes that you will not gaze upon a woman. 
But this is not just a covenant with you and your eyes. Make a covenant with you and God. And rely on his strength. Because if you try to do it in your own strength, you will fail every single time. Children, God commands you to honor your parents. I met with a very angry 16-year-old boy this week who was completely focused on what everybody else was doing wrong and not realizing that the common denominator in his problems was himself. And I explained to him that the relational issues that he was, was dealing with were a fruit of a bad relationship between him and God. And that what he really needed was to get right with God through Jesus Christ. And only then would he find the strength to be able to to respect those that the Lord had placed in positions of authority over him. But so often, we retreat into our own strength, our own ability, and we fail every single time. We forget what Jesus taught in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Not most things, not a few things, no things. You can do nothing. The only way that we can possibly obey God is because of his work in us. Because God is at work in the hearts of believers to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And beloved, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in those who believe. So this morning, are you relying on your strength? Or are you relying on the strength of Jesus Christ in you? Because Jesus was interceding for Peter, Jesus is also interceding for us. But his self-reliance was only part of Peter's problem. I've alluded to this already. He was focused on earthly things. And he wasn't alone in this. His attitude characterizes that of the rest of the disciples. Because the disciples, the disciples didn't recognize his methods. The disciples didn't recognize his methods. So just glance back in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19, verses 36 to 40. Luke 19, 36 to 40. As he rode along, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. And the Pharisees, as we saw last week, were witness to these events as well, and they told Jesus to rebuke the disciples. But he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I don't believe here this was just the, the core group of disciples, but a much larger group of people who had attached themselves to Jesus, themselves to Jesus and his ministry. And the numbers had swelled in recent days, especially after the raising of Lazarus. But I want to focus here specifically on the 11. 
You can understand their jubilation. They had already followed Jesus for three years, and now they thought he was coming into Jerusalem as a conquering king in order to to take the throne by force. And they wanted to rule by his side. But they didn't understand what Jesus was doing as he rode into the city on a donkey because they failed to recognize his methods. In John 12, 16, we read, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples constantly missed the point. They didn't understand that Jesus' method of ushering in the kingdom was to die. It happened again and again. Jesus repeatedly explained to them that he was going to lay down his life and then take it back up again, but they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. We saw how Peter rebuked Jesus. Imagine that, rebuking the king of kings when he said that he was going to die in Jerusalem. But then a few verses after after John's account of the triumphal entry, Jesus explains to Andrew and Philip in, in, 12, in John 12, 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he explained what he meant down in verse 32 when he said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. But the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand that there was actually a double meaning to what Jesus was saying there, that his being lifted up from the earth on a cross was also going to be his glorification, was going to lead to his exaltation and his vindication. So we look back at these events and we shake our heads at Peter and the other disciples and we wonder, how could they have been so foolish? How could they have misunderstood when Jesus told them again and again in black and white? Or if you've got a red-letter Bible, in red and white. But would we have been any different if we were there in their place? So here we are on the other side of the cross, 2,000 years later, and we can understand. Because we have the testimony of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. So we should be able to understand these things far better than the disciples did. But so often we really don't understand his methods either. So let me ask you this morning, do you recognize his methods? When Jesus said that a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die in order to bear much fruit, he wasn't just talking about himself. He was talking about his disciples as well. And not just those 11, he's talking about us if we are going to be his disciples. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates 
his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He said similarly in, similarly in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what do you think Jesus was talking about here? Do you think we literally have to die for Christ? Well, your answer to that question depends on where and when you live. History records that out of the 11 disciples of Jesus, 10 were martyred. 10 were martyred. And only John lived to the old age when, and he lived out his days in exile on Patmos. Countless Christians were killed in the early church at the hands of the Romans. In Tertullian's 197 AD work, Apologeticus, he wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. To this day, thousands of Christians are being killed for the name of Christ every year. So if you live in one of those countries, then yes, it does mean literally to give up your life. And in this country as well, if the Lord tarries, we will face the same type of persecution as they do. But right now, in this culture, at this particular time, yes, they might persecute you. Yes, they might threaten to take away your children. Yes, you might lose your job. Yes, you might be mocked. And that's why Paul said, I die daily. Following Jesus is a daily death. It's dying not only at the hands of those who would persecute us, but it's also dying against the sinful flesh. Now, of course, Jesus never sinned. But we are called to give up our lives as, as slaves, as indentured slaves of Jesus Christ. If you are born again, your life is not your own. That's why when we follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, we're representing our union with Christ in his life and then in his death and his resurrection. For you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. So are you dying daily? Are you dying daily? Are you denying yourself? Are you taking up your cross? Are you following Jesus? This is not just a one-time commitment. This is a daily commitment. It's following Jesus not on your terms. It means following Jesus wherever, however, whenever, whatever the cost. Finally this morning, I want to look at Pilate. We'll see the Pilate didn't recognize Jesus' majesty. 
So in Luke 23, verse 1, we find Jesus brought by the chief priests and the scribes to Pilate. Now this should shock you. Remember what I said last Sunday about the way that Pilate had made enemies of the Jews by bringing idolatrous images into Jerusalem. And then just before these events, Pilate had violently crushed a rebellion of the Jews. So the Jews hated Pilate. This idea of of Jews allying themselves against a fellow Jew with Pilate would be like a Jew going to Hitler because of a grievance that a fellow Jew had done. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And they figured that the best way to achieve that was to hand Jesus over to the Romans and let them do it. The Romans had actually taken away the Jews' right to impose capital punishment. So this was very handy for the Jews. And it was also a a fulfillment of Scripture. Because remember that Jesus had said that he was going to die by being lifted up from the earth. And so this was, even though Jesus was handed over by the Jews... This was still part of God's plan. God's plan from before the foundation of the world that he would send his son to die for the sins of his people. But the Jews knew that Pilate wouldn't be concerned about a religious crime, so they had to twist the story and they had to make it a political crime instead. So so they told Pilate that Jesus was an enemy of Rome. They told Jesus that, or they told Pilate that Jesus had forbade them to, to give offerings or to pay taxes to Caesar. But that's a complete lie. Jesus had told them exactly the opposite in Luke 20, 25, where he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus wasn't concerned about an earthly kingdom. But they told Pilate that Jesus was also saying that Christ is a king, or that Christ was claiming to be a king, and that much is true. So Pilate turns to Jesus and asks him directly, are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus answers Pilate, you have said so. Now John gives the rest of the dialogue in John 18, but the ensuing discussion between Jesus and Pilate reinforces the fact that Jesus was declaring that his kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate tells them, I find no guilt in this man. So realizing that they were losing their chance here, the religious leaders become desperate. And so they tell Pilate in verse 5 that Jesus is stirring up the people all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now that would have struck a nerve with Pilate because remember that he had just faced two other rebellions And he was was afraid that there was going to be a third. But he wanted to find out if Jesus was truly from Galilee, so he, he tried to duck the issue and sent Jesus to Herod. Because Galilee was part of Herod's jurisdiction. Now Herod didn't recognize Jesus either. All he wanted to see was to to see some miracles, as though Jesus was some sort of cheap parlor magician. And Jesus refused to answer Herod's questions. 
Herod was just a puppet servant. And all the while, the scribes and the, the, and the priests were hurtling accusations at Jesus, and so the soldiers mocked him. They dressed him in a, in a royal robe and sent him back to Pilate. And then Pilate tried to duck it again, saying that neither he nor Herod had found anything wrong in Jesus. He was not guilty of anything deserving death. So he tells the Jews, I will release him. I will punish him and release him. So the Jews called out together for Jesus to be sent to his death and for Pilate, a murderer, to be released. And again, John 18 gives us more detail, telling us that, that Pilate then goes back into Jesus and asks him where he comes from. But Jesus doesn't answer Pilate. So Pilate says, don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says to him, you have no power at all, but that which is given you from above. But those who have handed me over to you are guilty of the greater sin. And there he's likely referring to Caiaphas, the high priest. But again, Pilate wants to release him. And now the Jews are really desperate. So they tell Pilate that if he releases Jesus, he is no friend of Caesar. Now that one did it. Because if he handed, if he released Jesus, then he would be in trouble with the emperor who he worshipped. So Pilate stands Jesus before the crowd and says, Behold your king. And they keep shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And their voices prevail. So Pilate, ever fearful of another rebellion, decides to kill Jesus. And he takes the water and washes his hands, proclaiming his innocence of the blood of Christ. But he's going to be forever guilty. The people say, his blood be upon us and upon our children. In Matthew 27, 25, they did not recognize their mortality. And when some of the people wept for Jesus, in Luke 23, 28 to 30, he said, not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves and for their children. And blessed are those who did not bear children and that they would call on the mountains to fall on them. And judgment did fall on them, because in A.D. 70, as we discussed last week, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman soldiers, and many, many Jews were killed. So Pilate has Jesus scourged and then delivers him to be crucified. It was an event that vilified Pilate's name for all history. Forever his name Will, be, will become synonymous with moral cowardice. Even sec, the secular world vilifies his name. But Pilate, on a level, seemed to know that Jesus really was a king. He even had it inscribed on the top of the cross in, in Aramaic and Greek and in, in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, Latin, and Hebrew. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So it's Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now it was customary on the cross to, to give the name of the one who was being crucified and his crime. So, so his crime, so to speak, was to be the king of the Jews. And this made the Jews angry. So they said, don't write king of the Jews, but that he said he is king of the Jews. So Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. But even though Pilate understood on a level that Jesus really was a king, he had no idea who he was dealing with. He didn't recognize Jesus, not just as, a, as king of an obscure, defeated nation, but as his king. Pilate's king was Caesar. And he was more concerned about Tiberius Caesar than he was about the king of the universe. But let me ask you this. Do you recognize Jesus as your king? Do you recognize his majesty? As he walked on the earth, he wasn't recognizable as a king because he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53.2. And he certainly wouldn't have been recognizable there on Golgotha as he was beaten so badly that he was beyond human likeness, Isaiah 52.14. He wouldn't have been recognizable as he, as he stood there or as he hung there with with blood dripping down his face from the thorns on his brow, with blood dripping down his body from his skin that had been flayed by the Roman whips. It wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been recognizable with the, the blood pouring down his wrists and his hands from the spikes that held him to the cross. The people didn't recognize him they despised him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It even seemed that the Father didn't recognize him as Jesus shouted out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, 4 says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was. He was smitten by God and afflicted. As painful as the crucifixion was, and they say that the, cruci the crucifixion is the most painful, horrible way that a person can die. But as painful as that was, nothing compared to having the Father's wrath, the Father's holy wrath poured out on his innocent body. But even far more horrific for Jesus than that was that for the first time, the first time in all of eternity, that there was separation between the Father and the Son. Beloved, 
Jesus did that for us. Jesus did that for us. So aren't we going to bow gladly, joyfully before him in the strength that he provides? Rejoicing in the life that we have been given in Christ. Maybe there are somebody here who up until this point has not recognized Jesus that is not truly born again and is in the same boat as Pilate and and Judas and the crowds that chanted crucify him. We're all guilty of the blood of Christ. How are you going to respond to it? How are you going to respond to him? There was one person there that day who did recognize Jesus. Even through all the gore, even through the humiliation of the cross, there was one person there who recognized Jesus' methods, recognized his power, recognized his majesty, recognized his own mortality, and he did the only wise thing. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you get your kingdom. And Jesus there with his dying breath said, today you will be with me in paradise. Beloved, will you be with Jesus in paradise? Will you be with Jesus in paradise? That's our only hope. He's our only hope. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for us. Lord, I pray that you will help us to respond, that by your Spirit you will help us to recognize Jesus. And then because of the change that you make in our lives through the gospel, that others would be able to recognize Jesus in us. We pray this all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.